Today we are starting a new sermon series called What We Believe and Why It's Important. And I hope that you are awake and you have your thinking caps on a little bit because we're going to get a little bit deep here over the next few weeks. Talking about the beliefs of the church, we're going to start right in on the Trinity, which uh, for a lot of people can be kind of a confusing topic. Uh, In your bulletin, there was a green piece of paper. looks like this. Um, This is actually going to go right with my sermon. I'm just going to kind of march through this. So you'll be able to follow along and read the scriptures for yourself. I wanted to do that so you could follow along, but also so you could study a little bit on your own if you wanted. If you want an even more detailed handout than the two-page document you have there. Uh, I taught some of this stuff in Bible study uh, a couple months ago. And on the first pew here, there's a, a few pages that have a lot more stuff. A lot more scriptures you can look at. Uh, For instance, we're going to be dealing almost not at all with the Old Testament. uh, But it gets very interesting when you start looking at the Trinity in the Old Testament. And you'll get some of those texts and other things in that document. I wanted to do this because I wanted to talk about some of the important uh, doctrines of the church. But I really want to talk about why I think they're important. Not just important for the standards of the church, but important for your own personal spiritual life. And so I'm hoping that even though we're going to get deep in these sermons, that by the end of the sermon you'll understand why they're so important and, and, and come away with some real practical ideas for how to use these doctrines. The other reason that I really wanted to do this is because we are called Westminster Church. Technically Westminster United Presbyterian Church. And I'm not sure most people understand why we are Westminster. There are a lot of Westminster Presbyterian churches. Uh, There's one in uh, Elwood City. There's another in another part of our presbytery over towards Butler. Uh, And there's a lot of them. There's There's a lot of firsts, but there's also a lot of Westminsters. And the reason is because in the 1640s, there was a lot of division in the Church of England. And there was a lot of conflict. The the Church of England had pulled away from the Catholic Church. But there was a lot of debate, a lot of discussion. There was not a lot of unity, a lot of fighting going on. And so in 1643, the English House of Commons called for some group to get together to try to sort these things out. They wanted to put put together a government and a liturgy for the church in England that would be true to the Bible, but would also bring together some of the conflict. And so this assembly met at Westminster Abbey. About 151 people were on this group. Uh, They met 1,163 times between 1643 and 1649. So this was a committee that you got on and you just sort of stayed on. That's a long time to be on a committee. There are a lot of conflict, a lot of debate, a lot of fights that happened. But in the end, we came out with this great set of documents Uh, Most important to us is what's called the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a a document that we have. There's several documents we use in the Presbyterian Church that we have as our sort of standard documents. That Westminster Confession of Faith was also made into a couple of catechisms. Now, some of you may remember catechisms, but a lot of us, it's been a while since we've heard that. Catechism was a statement of faith, but it was written as a question and answer. And it was used for people... Children and anyone who wanted to join the church had to memorize these catechisms. So it would be sort of a question and answer that would go back and forth. And so the, uh, the Westminster Catechism, there are actually two. There's the larger and the shorter. 
so one is a little more detailed and one is a little bit easier and more simple. Um, later accepted by the Scottish General Assembly, later brought to America by the Puritans and by all these Scotch-Irish Presbyterians that settled in Philadelphia and in Pittsburgh and started a number of churches, especially here across Pennsylvania. So that's it's part of our namesake as Westminster Church, not just our heritage as Presbyterians. Part of our namesake as Westminster Church is that we care about doctrine, that we think it's important to be able to clarify and say and articulate in a clear way what the church believes and why that's important. That's important for unity, that's important for our own growth as a church. And so I thought not only that we should do the series, but maybe it would be interesting as part of this series for us to use some of the Westminster Catechism to actually pronounce our faith. And then I'm going to talk about whatever we pronounce in the Catechism. So on this green sheet, it says, from the Westminster Larger Catechism, let's stand together and uh, we're going to read this out loud. I'll read the questions. You'll read the answers. Okay? This is, this, is a, this is new to us, but this is very old to our tradition. This is just a regular part of worship a lot of times. So here we are, I'm at question six. What do the scriptures make known of God? The scriptures make known what God is. The persons of the Godhead, His decrees in the execution of His decrees. What is God? God is a spirit. In and of Himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection. All sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness. Are there more gods than one? And there is but only one, the living and true God. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There be three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one true, eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. Thank you. Please be seated. So, I'm not going to explain all of that today. But I want to get kind of the big idea. We're talking about the Trinity today. And, and for a lot of people, the Trinity can be confusing. Uh, and so a lot of people just ignore it, or pretend that it's not there. But it's an important doctrine. Uh, there was an interview one time with basketball player Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on the Johnny Carson show. If, if you know Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, he played for the Lakers. But when he played for, UL, uh, for ULC in college, his name was Lou Alcindor. And he became a Muslim. And Johnny Carson was asking him, you know, why did you become a Muslim? And what he said was, the Christians have this trinity thing. That there's three gods and yet they're one. And it, it doesn't make any sense to me. The Muslim faith makes sense to me because we've got one God, that's it. And then we've got prophets and lesser gods. And I think for a lot of Christians, they really understand, and for a lot of people who are not Christian, they can understand what Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is saying. 
But one of the things that we found in studying Christian growth over the last few decades is that it's actually very important that Christians understand the doctrine of the, the Trinity. Uh, according to the book Move, it's a study by Will the Willow Creek Association. They found that this is one of the major doctrines that Christians needed to wrestle with to really start growing in their faith. Key for us is, uh, is how do we look at it? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something that you may not believe. I don't know. It's the argument I'm going to try to make here. Is that actually the Trinity is not that complicated. It's just, I don't think it's all that complicated. The problem with the Trinity is it's a paradox. It's not logically congruent. And so if you have to have it make sense and you have to be able to figure it all out, you're just not going to. But if you're willing to accept it on faith, which is what I'm going to try to argue you should, then actually it's not that complicated and it can be a very helpful doctrine for us in our faith. The word Trinity is never used in the Bible. In fact, this may be interesting to you, it's first used, we think, by a man named Tertullian. Tertullian died in 220 A.D., so nearly 200 years after Jesus. They finally come up with a term for this thing that's going on with God. It's not formally accepted as the doctrine of the church, the key, until Constantine is, rule, is, is in rule in the 300s and has a series of councils. So if you think this is a little confusing, it is, because... You know, it took about 250 years before the church really established the language to explain. This didn't start out as a doctrine, is what I'm trying to say. What it started out was people experiencing God. And when they have Jesus come, and then they have the Holy Spirit at work in their lives and in their church, they're experiencing God in different ways and trying to come up with the language to describe it. Does that make sense? The experience comes... And the language to describe it comes later. Part of our problem in the church today is we do the opposite. We try to get the language before we experience it, and it causes us problems. So even though the, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, I think there are a, a number of times when it's really spoken of, and spoken of pretty specifically. We do start in the Old Testament, a prayer called the Shema. It's a prayer of the Jewish people. And it goes like this from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So point number one about the Trinity. We have one God. Only one God. That's what we get from the Jewish faith. I hope you understand how radical that idea was. In the ancient world, no other faith had one God. You barely had anybody that would be considered an atheist. Pretty much everybody had multiple gods. Gods for this, gods for that, God of the sky, God of the water. They had many, many gods. And so when the Jewish faith begins, when God reveals himself to Abraham and to Moses and this whole thing starts, the idea that there is one God is just radical. For the Jewish people were called atheists because they couldn't understand, the rest of the world couldn't understand how you could just have one God. Now, this idea of one God gets complicated when we move to the New Testament and we look at texts like Jesus' baptism from Matthew chapter 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. 
John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is a challenge, right? We have one God, and yet in this text we have three separate acting entities, right? You have Jesus being baptized, you have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and you have a voice of the Father from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son. How do we have one and yet three? And yet there are many texts like this where Jesus prays to the Father, where Jesus talks about the Spirit coming after him, where it is clear, point number two, that God is made up of three separate persons. That's the language the church sort of developed for this. Personal entities. They have their own personality, their own will, their own thought. How, does, uh, how did we say this in our, in our catechism? Although distinguished by their personal properties. This is really important though. It's not three separate gods. It's still just one God. And some of the language that we'll get to in a minute is going to, to show you that it's got to be one God. And it's really important that you understand that it can't just be one God sort of trading places. Okay, that's, that's a, it's a belief called modalism. And it doesn't make any sense in Scripture. Kind of like there's one God, and he comes over here and he puts on the Holy Spirit hat, and he works as the Holy Spirit, and he takes that hat off and comes over here and becomes like the Father, and then he acts like the Son. Well, that doesn't line up with the text. Because the text says we got all three happening at the same time. This is so important to Jesus that when he tells his disciples to go and baptize others, he tells them to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to them, Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, for Jesus, it's not just about the Father, it's, just, it's not just about Him. It's not just about the Holy Spirit. But there is something in this saving work that God does that involves the Father and the Son and the Spirit all together. See, point three. All the persons of the Trinity have eternally been equal to God. The, the, the way that we said that earlier was they're all of the same substance. They're all made up of the same thing. It's not that you could separate them but they're all at the same time made up equal in power and in glory and important, eternal. We don't often think about that. We think of Jesus being born as a baby. But the text is really clear that Jesus always has been. From John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is Jesus. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
So Jesus, it's really clear in John, was with God in the beginning, and he was God. Jesus was there in creation. And what about the Holy Spirit? Well, we see this really clearly. When the early church debated this, the first thing they debated was whether Jesus was God or not. Or maybe Jesus switched. And sometimes he was man, and sometimes he was God. But once they really established this idea that Jesus has got to be fully God and fully man all at the same time, which we're going to talk about next week, then the debate became the Holy Spirit. But listen to how the text deals with this in Acts chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, key there, lie to the Holy Spirit, and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After, you have sold, after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So Ananias and Sapphira, they sell this piece of land and they give the money to the church. And what they say is, hey, we're giving all this money to the church. And they lie. It's not a big deal. It wouldn't have been a big deal if they had just kept the land. But they tried to present themselves as giving everything when they really didn't. And they lie. And so Peter says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And then what does he say at the end? You lied to God. So for Peter, the Holy Spirit is God. Hebrews 9.14 says that the Holy Spirit is eternal. You can do a whole study of this on the Old Testament, in the Old Testament of creation. When it talks about the Spirit, there was a Spirit hovering over the waters. Now, so we've got three, and yet at the same time, one. Does this make sense? No. You can be honest. No, it doesn't. How can three be one? That's where we start jumping and screaming. How can three be one? And yet, that is what the text says. How can Jesus pray to the Father, and yet at the same time he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He can talk to the Father, and at the same time he can say, you look at me, you look at, you look at my dad. I mean, how, how can Jesus talk about the Holy Spirit and then say, I am sending you my Spirit? There is just this paradox in the Scripture. Three and yet one. I've heard it tried to be described as an egg. If you have an egg, you have one thing. But you also have three. You have a shell, you have white, and you have a yolk. But even that metaphor doesn't quite do it because you still got three things, right? I can take the shell off. I can take the yolk out and I can talk about them separate. If anything, it's more like a scrambled egg. But then it gets really confusing. The fact of the matter is, it's just a paradox. And when you're willing to accept that your brain can't figure this out, it's actually not that complicated. They're three and yet they're one. They're somehow all the same and yet we can talk about them as separate persons. At some point you just have to accept the mystery of the Trinity. And as we're going to be looking at over the next two weeks, each member of this Trinity has kind of their own separate role, their own separate relationship to one another. I'm going to spell this out in the next few weeks. But God the Father is really the creator, the eternal purpose. 
The Son is really the incarnational presence. So even in the Old Testament, we, we have show scenes where God is walking around talking. We look to that as Jesus. The Holy Spirit as this inspiring power or comforter. We're going to unpack this more over the next couple of weeks. And we could go a lot longer than that. What's important for right now is that you understand that we have with God these three faces. These three ways that we can relate to God as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit. And the fact of the matter is most Christians today don't relate to God in all three. Most Christians tend to favor one over the other two. Um, this is problematic. Because first of all, I think we must deal with God on God's terms. If I tell you my name is Jordan, and you walk around calling me Jonathan, you're not being very respectful to me. I gave you my name. It's my name. You don't get to pick what my name is. You don't get to talk to me about, you don't get to talk to me in ways that are not true of me and have me still be respectful of that. That's not honest. And so if God gives us a way of talking about himself, then I think we need to take that seriously. Number two, I think this is really important because it shows the motivation of God. We tend to think of God creating people because basically he's lonely. I mean, in our brain, we sort of think about that. God is lonely, he's bored, and so he starts creating to have something to do. These people mess up, so he's got to come in and fix the problem. But part of our understanding of the Trinity is that because God is already three, God is never lonely. He's never incomplete. He's never imperfect. He doesn't need anything. So why does God create? And why does God go to so great an action to save his creation? It's not out of his own need. It's out of love. It's out of love that God creates. It's out of love that God saves. And if you don't have a good understanding of the Trinity, you miss that. And you you end up having a God who's weak, who's needy, who's lonely. And that is not the God of the Bible. Thirdly, we need to know God, not just about God. I think this is is vital. Um, Remember how I said the Trinity was something that was experienced and explained later. And I think we in the church today try to do the opposite. You've got to try to figure God out. And it's very easy for us when we try to make God somebody to be figured out. He's more like a math problem. But the God of the Trinity is a God of personhood. A God you can relate to. A God you can get to know better. That you can get to know over time. That you can have a relationship with. God is not a math problem. He's not a series of points to understand. Imagine if you treated your marriage that way. You're married to a person, right? That you get to know. That even after years of being married to will surprise you. That is what God is like. He is a relational God. By his very nature, before he even creates people, God is a relational God. And so guess what? When we're made in the image of God... We are made relational as well. So we've got to get to know God, not just about God. It's like Saul when he's blinded on the road and he says, Who are you, Lord? He confesses that the Lord is Lord before he even knows about him, even knows who he is. Number four, I think we need to experience the fullness of our relationship, 
or our relational God. Most Christians say they're Trinitarian, but they're not really. If you want to understand where your focus is in the Trinity, think about your prayer life. Which person of the Trinity do you pray to? I'm willing to bet, because we're in a Presbyterian church, that about all of us pray to the Father. I mean, almost exclusively to the Father. We pray in Jesus' name. We may say something about the Holy Spirit. But for a lot of us, we pray to the Father. Do you know other traditions are not like that? If you go to more evangelical, sort of independent churches, they pray to Jesus all the time. If you go to more Pentecostal churches, they're going to pray to the Holy Spirit. Or if they pray to the Father, they're going to pray and ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit about the things that they're praying about. So we have three faces of God. Three ways that we can relate to God. And we are missing out in our prayer life, in our church life, if we only relate to one of those. And so I would encourage you to start thinking about that. Start praying to different members of the Trinity. I try to do that. If, if you'll notice, if you listen to me when I pray, I try to pray to, I, I pray to the Father more. I do. But I try to vary my prayers, especially at communion. We have a tradition at communion that you pray to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. And so you'll hear me in my communion. I pray three paragraphs normally in leading up to communion. To the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. I mean, imagine you're only living a third of your spiritual life if you're only relating to one person of the Trinity. That'd be like getting to know me. You probably know me as pastor. probably know me as preacher. There's a lot more to me, right? Husband, sinner. Last week I was at a martial arts conference. A lot of people don't know that about me. I do a lot of karate. So if you have a lot of critique of my sermon, you might remember that. Hold that to yourself a little bit. I play guitar. Some of you know that. I like to watch movies and TV shows. I love to read. I'm a Panera Bread fanatic. You don't know me in all these contexts, right? Now, I don't want to ruin the metaphor. It's, again, it's not like it's God switching roles. Okay? It's still this three in one. But there is a fullness to God. You have the opportunity to get to know God in such a real way through all these different persons of the Trinity. Three windows, three glimpses, three faces of God. Why would you only relate to one of them? And why would you be so scared by this idea of the Trinity that you almost don't relate to any of them? Finally, I think that this idea of the Trinity should lead us to some humility. God is much bigger than I can figure him out. You ever think you can figure out God? You, you just can't. You just can't. That's not who God is. And a little bit of humility, I think, in the church is a good thing. Lead us to faith. I'm never going to totally understand the Trinity. But at some point, I can just say, all right. I can look at the scriptures. I can look at my own experience of God as sort of a purpose in my life of Jesus coming, of the Holy Spirit speaking and working through me. And I can say, well, I don't understand how those three relate. But I understand that they're all three relating to me. All at once. And I think to worship. When we worship, when we come here to praise God, we praise God because He is so mighty and He is so powerful and He is so other than we are. I mean, what were all the words we used just a little bit ago? All sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible. That was like the longest sentence ever. We just kept giving adjective and adjective and adjective to describe God. And, and those weren't all of them. We could keep doing that forever. And so that's what we're to be about. Praise, praise to God. And I think the Trinity drives us to that point. So 
three and one, if you can get over the fact that that won't logically make sense, that the math doesn't work there, uh, I think it gives us an opportunity to peer into God. Next week, we're going to talk about the Father and the Son. And the following week after that, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. So we're going to talk even more specifically about the persons of the Trinity. But I want to encourage you to start thinking about this. Start reading over some of these texts. And maybe just start. It may sound a little weird. Start praying to the other persons. Start praying to the Holy Spirit. And your prayer life is going to get really different. It's going to get much deeper. Let me pray for you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, forgive us that we try to make you like us. Someone we can understand, someone we can control. Give us the humility to accept you in your terms as you have described yourself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, speak to us, touch us, that we may understand you more fully. May our lives, our church, and our world never be the same again. Amen.